This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111. Good morning. Good morning and welcome to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics live every Wednesday morning, 8 to 10 Eastern. Coming at you from the SiriusXM Business Radio Studios in Huntsman Hall. Looking out onto the famed University of Pennsylvania Locust Walk on a almost balmy, gray but balmy, April morning here. This is Cade Massey hosting with the whole crew. All my buddies and collaborators from Wharton Moneyball, four years now, are here in the studio. Audie Weiner just walked in the door. We're going to out you as a late arrival. Shane Jensen. Terrible. Just a minute before Audie. I've been here for hours prepping. Yeah. Uh-huh. As far as Audie knows, you have been. Yeah. And then Eric Bradley, of course, back from gallivanting the world around, I'm sure. And uh, we're all going to be here for the next two hours. You can join us. Give us a shout. We'd love to have you jump in here. The phone number is one wharton That's one 942 Matt Dotts, our producer, standing by for your phone call. You could, he could, ring, you could ring him right now. He'll pick it up. You'd also email us, businessradio at SiriusXM.com. Businessradio at SiriusXM.com. It's a great way to reach out over the course of the week. We're replayed four or five times. If it's not 8 to 10 Eastern Wednesday morning, you're not listening live. You can still you can still reach out. Email businessradio at SiriusXM.com. You can also, in the middle of the show, email us. We have picked them up and responded real time. You can follow us on Twitter at WMoneyBall. At WMoneyBall is the handle up there. We follow all of our guests. We tweet periodically over the course of the week about any and all matters sports analytics. It's a good way to stay on top of that world at WMoneyBall if you're in the Twitter thing. All right, guys. We have our usual contingent of guests at the bottom of this hour and the top of the next hour. Between now and then, open lines. And then we'll end the show again with open lines, open conversation. I'm curious. Haven't been here with the whole crew in a while. Good to see you boys. Yeah, good to be be back. What (laughs) has caught your eye lately in the world of sports? Well, since I've been away for, I guess, the longest of all of us, I have. have. I have. I was away. I was at a Wharton Forum in Sydney, which was great. Um, I have six different sports we could talk about, and so I thought I'd throw them out there, and you guys just pick one. So the NCAA tournament not, not, is... Not baseball. Uh, it is no, one. It is one. possibly be baseball. The NCAA tournament, of course, is one. Uh, the Masters, so golf is another. Uh, the NBA, tennis, the NFL, NFL draft, or MLB. NFL draft. <laughs> NFL draft. Okay. Was that Cade or was that Shane? That was Shane. <laughs> yeah, so, so what's interesting What's interesting now, and obviously we have maybe one, certainly one of the world's experts on the NFL here, uh, Cade Massey, and also the work that you've done on quarterbacks and their overvalue in the draft. Notice how the, as the draft getting getting closer and closer, the predictions for the number of quarterbacks going in the first round is not only increasing, but now they've got, I mean, the latest prediction by both Todd McShay and Mel Kuyper has four quarterbacks going in the first five picks of the draft. So I was just going to ask everybody, um, there's two ways to look at this. One is, haven't they learned about overvaluing quarterbacks? Or maybe they have. And the second thing is, wouldn't you love to be a team in the top ten that's not drafting a quarterback that needs somebody at a, let's call it an auxiliary position, who's saying to myself, this is amazing. I'm sitting here at number six. 
I I'm going to get that guy. I'm getting Bradley Chubb. Yeah. I'm getting Minka Fitzpatrick. I'm getting one of these guys who's the top corner in the draft, the top defensive lineman in the draft. And I'm sitting here, and I don't need a quarterback. So yeah. I was just I mean, wondering your I mean, guys' The reaction. team you just described is the Indianapolis Colts. They've already made a trade. Correct. They're down at number six now. They they, they got however many second, third they round. They got three second round picks. Just to move From down three, three to six. Well, so and, I mean, they they've they're you know they're winning at they're, life. Right now, Kuiper has them taking Brad Chubb. He's a defensive end out of NC State. That's I was in India a month ago. The the sports page was writing about taking Chubb at three. So it's exactly Eric's point. They're going to get there according to Kuiper, the exact guy they want, and they collected a boatload of picks in the process. Now I must admit, given as everyone knows, it's been listening to us for four years. I'm a Bucks fan. It peeves me to no end that the Bucks won their last game of the season last year. They're number seven in the draft right now. They yeah. de- they had they were the worst team in the NFL in pressuring the quarterback in sacks. They could use Bradley Chubb. They won the last game, which made them slip from five to seven. Mm-hmm. And you say to yourself, "Well, you know, it was good to go into the off season with momentum." Momentum, I mean, for, yeah. yeah well, I'm the say, momentum guy. On, man. I am the momentum <laughs> Carry guy. That but momentum man, oh, into man, next year. How much would I love to have? You know, Jameis Winston threw a touchdown pass with five seconds left to win the game, and I'm thinking to myself, <laughs> "Gosh, you pick. oh my god, could I please not have won that game? How much would you rather have five now? Even well, if you, how, how much? How much would you trade up? What would you give up to trade up one slot?" Because I mean, they have that option. They definitely have that option. Would you? Uh, would you do it? Uh, I think I would trade. Jets did. No, that's way too much. I would say, would you trade? Well, I think I would trade. Obviously, seven for six. Yeah, and I would give a third round pick. Hmm, you're going to probably have to give more than that, but. To move up one spot, we we we, we dial up the chart if we want to. We could dial we, up. You give up a third round pick to move up one no, spot. Interesting. Your 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 view is it's too much, and 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 Shane said it's too well, low. I mean, no, I mean, I think if Shane's uh, just trying to prove if Indianapolis, well, no, if Indianapolis actually wants that dude, it doesn't matter whether they want that dude or not. Who cares what they want? So, if, who, who do you guys? What do you guys think a team like the Browns should do with that first pick? So, if you think quarterback, which quarterback? And if you think running back, or if you think not quarterback, do you take Barkley? I would take Saquon Barkley. Well, well it's back to the point. Are you indifferent between Josh Allen, Sam Darnold, and Josh Rosen? If you're indifferent, then obviously you're sitting at four. You take Barkley. My math says there's three <laughs> quarterbacks left. One of them has to be left yeah. at number four. No matter who trades above you, below you, whatever, I, I would take Barkley, but so, I don't have a great sense of how much they evaluate those other three. Uh, Kate, wouldn't it be the right thing to trade it? If I've understood your research, trade the one, the one year in year out. Sure, Hist- history suggests that you do better by trading out of those early picks. Absolutely. So let's say that's the right thing. What should they be doing? Well, the, of course, it depends on your evaluation of the players. I mean, if you're if you're sufficiently sure and you actually have good judgment, hmm. then that's going to overweigh the historical base rates. But you have to be sufficiently sure. And, of course, that's the problem. Teams are too sure they can identify whether or not a player is going to be well, successful. Well, can I also be – let me be a business school professor just for one second. Just for we one learned, second, we learned, come back. We learned supply and demand, right? <laughs> so there has to be somebody that wants to continue to trade up for one. You could make an argument that everyone that was going to trade up – to get a quarterback has already traded up. Maybe there's not a big enough market anymore for number one because you know the Giants, the Giants are where they are. The Jets traded up. The Colts have traded down. You know, maybe there's nobody left. That I mean, I'm not saying that doesn't want number one, but doesn't want number one at a fair market price. Maybe there is no supply and demand in the market right now and, that and, would make it so that Cade's research suggests no, that it would make sense. Fair market and price, and also, yeah. I mean, I, I could understand averaging over all historical situations that you would want to trade away those early picks and accumulate 
you know, I'm uh, extra chances, I guess, to hit. But at some point, you actually have to start picking players and form a team, or else mm-hmm. you will continue to not accumulate top end talent. That's right. You will continue to be bad. You will continue to get those number one picks. And then you'll continue to trade them away, and eventually you actually have to bite the bullet and actually start picking players. Sure, of course you do. But and what, what, is Cleveland at that point? I mean, they've certainly, I think, no, been I mean, at that if, point if, if you, if for years. You, you pick, you pick three or four late first round, early second round instead of one. At yeah, the top. that's the idea. The value yeah, is just I mean, enormous. Still picking. Well, players. though the drop a quarterback drop off is well, we something, right? The, the, do the they court- have no quarterback? Cleveland. They just traded for Tyrod Taylor. Yeah, they got Tyrod Taylor. So they've Taylor. got they've got a Roll player that, that many people think many people think is undervalued. <laughs> Shane smiling. No, out I of mean the AFC okay, East. sure, sure. But look at the good news. He's the one that's going to train the great quarterback you're going to draft. Yeah, so think about how great you got there. They got a pretty sweet situation sitting there in Cleveland. Where I'm sitting, not really getting all this in all its intricate detail. Wouldn't the Browns want to trade away their top pick and get? A whole they, bunch they, of back they have first done round that. seconds. They've done that. They've been uh, doing they, that yeah. unsuccessfully. Exactly. They yeah. Did, well, they did it. They they followed that philosophy more than almost any other team for the last few years, and they compiled a bunch of picks. And in fact, those bunch of picks have allowed them to make some of the acquisitions this season, and still left them with a great set of picks. So it's exactly because of that philosophy yeah. that they're in a relatively you could, strong position. You may now. ask them why do they have number one and four? Like it's not yeah, like the draft order gave them one and four. Right. They've got number four because they traded down in but, past years' draft. That's, so that's what I, they did. I think one of the fairest questions here that there's not a I've not seen a crisp empirical answer to is if you don't get a quarterback here, where are you going to get one? You've got to pick them up somewhere. So in some sense, our our analysis, even though I believe it and it's as rigorous as it can be done as in, in with the data we had, is incomplete in that it doesn't. We don't staff the entire roster. We it's not a complete model that says every position has to be filled. You need two quarterbacks at least, maybe three. You're mm-hmm. going to get them from somewhere. So if you don't get them here, it's an, it's a, it's an optimization problem. So honestly, a question for you. We don't have the data in front of us, but the, hard, the data say, historically, it is a bad bet that you would do better. You would do better to back out. You would do better by any number of measures to, to get trade out of those top positions. But if you do that, where are you going to get your quarterback? Yeah. I'm not saying that overturns everything, but I think it's a fair question. No, and I think I think that's the thing is I think that you know I mean yes these they're these quarterbacks these first few quarterbacks are overvalued. I think anybody can agree on that, but you have to do you do have to get a nice a good quarterback, and it's unclear where else you would get. I mean, you could try through the, free the, agency, you could try through hitting the lottery on a later. They don't usually come in free pick. agency. So Kirk Cousins, for example, yeah. was one of the well, rare. That was an option. No, a, that's a, right. It's a rare thing. Rare that thing. No, but I mean, I mean, you can get like as an organization, you can decide you're going to roll out there with a Tyrod Taylor or somebody yeah. of that ilk if you feel like that's going to allow you to contend. What's, what's of course interesting, just to show you to emphasize Cade's point about the error rate on this. Last time I checked, the Jets have drafted a bunch of quarterbacks recently. Oh, yeah. Matter yeah. of fact, Don't the do Broncos, what they do. who are now sitting at number five, who they're saying is going to take Baker Mayfield, that's now the new projection, they just drafted a quarterback. Mm-hmm. They just drafted Paxton Lynch a year or two ago. Mm-hmm. So let's not make it seem like the Jets haven't tried to draft a quarterback. They've been not this high in the draft, but they've been drafting quarterbacks the last three, four that, years. That's yeah. the heart of our analysis, that each year you convince yourself that these guys are can't miss. And and one thing we've learned over the years about the NFL they draft, can miss yeah that, yeah they can miss all but, right so that's that's one of the topics you yep. had you want to talk yep. about we'll talk a lot more about the draft over the next couple of weeks well let's I I'm interested in talking obviously everybody knows so I'm a, I was obviously excited by the NSA tournament there were five what I considered rare events in the NSA tournament 
and which one do you think will happen <laughs> that's, that's most funny, recently? Huh? Um, so th- uh, there were five events. That's that, ill-posed. What do you mean? In other words, there were five things that actually happened in this last NCAA tournament. I'm going to list them. And then which one of them do you think will happen next? Like oh, next. again. Okay. Again. So the first one is um, Dante DiVincenzo from the Villanova Wildcats scored 31 points off the bench. It's the most that had been done in 30-something years. Off the bench or period in the final? Off the bench. I, he was off the bench, but the he was most, a bench 31, player. I thought 31 was high for other standards as well. I know someone scored 35 like in ni- in the early 80s. Maybe okay. 31's even okay. high. Just, okay. I'm sure it's a high number just entirely, but yeah. he, it was off the bench. Second, we obviously, people want to forget, we had a 16 CB to 1 seed this year for yep. the first yep. time ever. So that was another rare event that happened. Villanova won all of its games by 10-plus points. It only happened one time in the last 35 years. Hmm. So that was another rare event. Third, uh, Loyola Chicago, an 11 seed, made it to the Final Four. Now, it had happened before, but it was the fourth time ever that it happened. And the last one, which had, again, never happened before, Michigan made it to the Finals, but didn't play anybody higher than a 5 seed the entire way, which means their entire part of the bracket, if you'd like, was decimated by early losses. So, again... A single player scoring a lot, a 16 beating a 1, a team winning all games by 10-plus points, an 11 seed making the Final Four, or a team basically advancing all the way through the tournament and never beating someone higher than a 5 seed. Which one do you think we will see next? 11 seed again. I mean, this That's empirically tend- true. Yeah, I'm right. just asking. These are all low base rate yeah. events. So you're going because... I kind of feel like every... I, I don't know what the actual base rate... I'm going to take a guess at the base rate that, like... Every five years or so, we have somebody, some team in the 10, 11, 12 seed making it to the Final Four. Maybe it's not as often as that. The, the Michigan thing also seems relatively likely that brackets fall and you can make it through. On but a everybody, like all top four think, seeds yeah. in the bracket not hap- not making it. Yeah. 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 Either way, I just thought that was... I, th- I think those two are the ones that, to me at least, sound Intu- the more, in, more, in, most, more probable. 31 off the bench seems is ridiculous. Is ridiculous. The the ones in sixteens we talked a lot about last week actually it was good good fun conversation. Um, the thing about ones in sixteens is you only get four chances a year, and we get a lot of guys coming off the bench to to play basketball. I was thinking that one that would happen pretty not I'll say recently. I was surprised that no team has been that dominant that's won yeah. every game by ten plus right. points. I mean, if you get mm-hmm. the first two games, I'm, if you're if you if you're the winner. Let, I'm not saying you have to, but let's pretend like those are almost probability one events. Yeah. So now you have four games you have to win by 10-plus points. I, I Actually, I'm surprised that that one's as rare as it is. Cool. This is Wharton Moneyball. We're into the first half hour. Full conversation here with the whole crew, Shane Jensen, Adi Weiner, Eric Bradlow, and this is Cade Massey. You can join the conversation. 1-844-WHARTON, 1-844-942-7866. What else you got on your caught your eye list there, Bradlow, who hasn't been around in a month? Well, you I haven't watched I, any baseball yet? Come on. Not, uh, we'll get it's to, coming, base, we'll like get in, to in, baseball in, in, in a second. Position. Actually, I was at the Rays Red Sox home opener. Oh. So I was at I've been I've been at baseball down games already down in Florida. Yeah. I was down yeah. in Florida. We went to the Rays Red Sox home opener. It was They're the only loss. One, one loss to the yeah. Red Sox has. It was it was a great day in baseball that day. Um, it's been all downhill since. But it's yeah, for the Rays <laughs> have won the game since, and the Red Sox have won every one since. Um, I want to talk about 538's NBA predictions since we're you know heading towards the end of the NBA season. So I'm probably I think I'm the only one that's probably looked at them, or maybe I'm not. If you had to get so this is what I wanted to talk about, and the way I've, I've framed this in my own mind is low face validity. So I'd rather you not put it up on the screen yet because I've got some numbers here. I want you guys to guess what odds do you think right now that five thirty eight has as of this morning? 
for the Houston Rockets to win the NBA title. Now, let's remember, remind everybody, the Houston Rockets are the one seed in the West. They've locked <coughs> in the one seed. They are the one seed. Golden State's the two seed, etc. That Those are locked in. What do you think the odds that 538 has right now for the Rockets to win the NBA title? Heuristic, real quick, off the top of your head, heuristic is, is something below, just below 25. Give them half to come out of the West and half to win the final. Right. That's, of course, both, certainly the former is a little too high. So let's make it 23, 20, 20. That's 20. where I was, 20, okay. 23. Okay. 57%. Wow. <laughs> 57%. That's too 57%. high. 57%. Wow. Um, they have them as a 68%. Per- just, well, to show you two numbers that are too high, they have them as a 68% chance of making the final. So 68% chance of coming out of the West. No. And I. I'm just telling you what it says, and then <laughs> and, give it, and then you can also no, say, and then it must be somewhere in the 85 percent range to win well, the finals if they make the do finals. They, they do, use, do we give positive probability to neither them nor Golden State making it to the finals? Is there any? any well, let me just tell you. By the way, their odds. Thank you, uh, thank you, Shane. Their odds of the Warriors winning the title, six percent right now. Yeah. Okay. So, five thirty-eight is in love with the Elo model. This is what drives everything. They use, they use. Well, it. this it's, is this is they, they use it because it's it's very easy to update. It's it's, 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 it's comparable it's, across sports. It's easy to communicate. That's right. So that's, that they just decided early on that was. But it doesn't do anything with the fact that the regular season is just has a, a an odd characteristic in basketball that doesn't project into the playoffs. I.e., it's meaningless. <laughs> meaningless well, that's, is that's not meaningless. Right, slightly not entirely true. So you you have teams like the Cavaliers who are third place in the East. You have the, the uh, Golden State, which is you know second place in the West, and I don't know what they are right now in the season. And you just have to forecast the finals in a different way, and they won't they won't compensate. They won't change for injuries. I mean, the only stat I've that. seen that I don't want to say contradicts. I we all agree the NBA is mean, the NBA regular season is mostly meaningless. I would say two things. Um, it is a stat that I've seen recently. Of the ten last NBA champions, nine of them have had the best record in the NBA going into the playoffs. Now, the only exception to that was Cleveland when they beat Golden State in a miraculous Game Seven, whatever, two years nine, ago. Nine out of ten. Yeah. That's so high. if you're sitting there at Houston, you're saying to yourself, "We got the best record in the NBA. Why can't it be us?" So, but either way, yeah. I just thought that was because a, it's Golden State. I, mean. I, I know, <laughs> I understand that. So that was one low face validity number. The other was they have the Sixers, the Celtics, and the Cavs as equal probability of making the finals in the East. With basically all the mass goes to four teams. Not surprisingly, the Raptors they have as a forty percent chance of making the finals, and then the Sixers, Celtics, and Clippers. Uh, sorry, not Clippers, Cavs. <laughs> all at about eighteen percent. So let me let me give you the betting market alternative to all those right, numbers. good. So this good. is this is a counterbalance to that. And again, I, I'm just, I'm slightly defending five thirty eight because those guys know that those numbers have problems they just use it as a communication device it's a choice they made early on but you can see how problematic the numbers when you when you look at say the market odds from bovada or some sports book they have the warriors as the favorite at plus 110 for winning the whole thing they're winning the whole thing Hey, this okay, so, is the first time in a long time they've been less than fifty percent, according to. I can get more yeah. than a hundred dollars for betting a hundred. That's great. Rockets I'm going at, on there. Rockets at plus one fifty. So those are the two big favorites. Are you guys a little surprised? I mean, we've talked about this a number of times, Adi. Are you a little surprised that the two favorites are both from the same conference? A bit. In the sense yeah, that yeah. They you know, someone has to up. make yeah. the conference. No, and also someone has to make the finals right. from the East. Right. Last I, time I, I, I assume Cleveland would be the uh, favorite. They're, they're third at only plus 600. So they'd really like the West winner. The plus 600? Yeah. Well, that makes sense. Translate that to probabilities for us, guys. One out of seven. Which means? 
Fourteen percent. All right. <laughs> so you're saying you wouldn't take right now? You wouldn't bet a hundred on the Cavs to win six hundred? Well, that's it. No, I think no. The, I, I mean, did. first of all, no, I don't think I would. Put it all in the Cavs, man. They're going to make no, the I don't finals. Think the, I don't think the, the Cavs have a chance. I mean, really? I don't. No, I'm I mean, sitting no, here with the chance, opposite yes. reaction. Yes, I'm sitting here saying, like I think, Shane, I think the winner of Houston, a hundred to win six hundred. That that seems like a good bet maybe, on the Cavs. Maybe the Warriors knock out the Rockets, and then Steph isn't full speed in the finals, and LeBron takes over. That's I mean, entirely it's, possible. It, it's only happened recently, guys. <laughs> okay, let me let me let me ask right? my basketball. We're my at, ba- acting like this okay. is really unpredictable. <laughs> well, of course, the game that mattered last night, one of the few NBA yeah, games that exactly. actually matters, this is a great was point. Cleveland beat Toronto last night. It's the second time they've beaten them in the last two weeks. So I don't know. You know, maybe. I mean, well, how do they look? So tell me from. Uh, I test how does Cleveland look? It's hard to say because they really haven't had their full squad, you know, since they've made all those trades. Um, I'll tell you who looks great, LeBron. He looks great. Matter of fact, I think this is the best season I've in. I don't think I've ever seen a guy more efficient on the court than I've seen him. The guy's averaged like a triple-double over the last 60 games. I wonder if he's less worn down, either because yes. of better S&C training or because they've, they've used him less. Have they, have, they, have they preserved him more? Do we know this? How, how do his minutes look? His minutes are down, but they're still extraordinarily high compared okay. to other people. I, I saw some piece about he's doing something different on the strength and conditioning front. I've seen that, too. But also, let's just say, he's played... Oh, I think I'm pretty sure it's true what I'm about to say. He's played every game this season, too. So it's not like they've rested yep. him. He's actually played every single what game this season. What are his minutes season. per game compared to when in the playoffs? Well, he like I've got to believe season. he's... I, I, I'm making up a number. He's got to be around 35 minutes a game during wow. the regular season. Okay. In the playoffs, I mean... He's in the 40s. Can you be higher than 48 out of 48? Yeah. Eric, you, there was a quote from Dr. J. So the Sixers are about to un, I, un, un, I saw be, the unveil a statue of him... Um, they unveiled com- it yesterday. They unveiled it yesterday at their practice facility, and he was quoted as saying, "Ben Simmons, their their young player, se- second year player, but first year playing, is a once in a lifetime player." This is from Dr. J. What do you make of that? I've been to a lot of Sixer games. I love Ben Simmons, and Ben Simmons can't even shoot. So I mean, <laughs> he's averaging a triple double basically, and he can't shoot the ball. I mean, he can't shoot above fifteen feet, even fifteen. I'm being generous. He probably doesn't shoot above ten feet from the basket, and the guy dominates the game just because of his speed, his court vision. He, you know, I think I told you guys that last time I was on the air, I told you this stat. He had the first game in like forty years. He had the highest. He had seventeen assists and zero turnovers. So no one had ever had a game wow. with a with fifteen or more assists and zero yeah. turnovers. Yeah. Matter of fact, Jeez. this guy over his last like second half of the season, he's averaging twelve assists a game and one and a half turnovers a game. And this is a guy playing in his first year. That's amazing. Ben Simmons also has the highest of all guards, has the highest defensive efficiency rating in the NBA. That's the other thing people forget. He's six foot ten, two fifty. So he's LeBron size. And He's the best defensive guard in the NBA. So it's an unbelievable... I mean, everyone loves, obviously, Joel Embiid, bad eye injury. But, I mean, Joel Embiid is phenomenally talented. I haven't seen a guy with that much talent since Hakeem Olajuwon in terms of his skill set. But Ben Simmons, right now, if you had to keep one of the two... I think you'd have to keep oh Ben my Simmons. Gosh, no I know. Wow. Maybe it's heretical, but I think you'd have to keep Ben Simmons. How much damage might those guys do in the playoffs? Well, here's the other thing. So right now, the Sixers are going to be locked into one of three spots. They can't be lower than the five, essentially, right now. They have a five-game lead, I and think. they can't be higher than three. They can't be higher than three. Now, my sons and I have been having a large debate. 
who would you rather be? My son is begging for them to stay in the four spot. Now, why four versus five? Well, you want home court in the first round. If you're the three, you could end up playing, let's say, the Heat, the Wizards, or the Bucks, who a lot of people think are a lot better than the Pacers. Mike, a lot of people want them to play the Pacers because the Pacers have very little playoff experience. They don't have any superstars on the Pacers. That's a team you can beat. You think about the Heat. Obviously, you've got Dwayne Wade, Drogic, other players. Obviously, the Wizards have Bradley Beal, John Wall. Matter of fact, the Sixers have looked terrible against the Wizards this year. I think I've been to three of those games. The Bucks obviously have the Greek freak. They've got some other good young players. I think a lot of people would say stay in the four. Also, who would you rather play in the second round, Mr. Boston? Would you rather play Toronto or Boston in the second round? A lot of people would say if you're the four and everything goes according to the you know chalk, you'd rather play Toronto in the second round than play Boston potentially. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I don't know. It's it's it, Cleveland's going to come out of it anyway. So uh, no, I, I mean, uh, I think yeah, I, I think I, I guess maybe Boston scares me a little bit more than Toronto if I had to pick. Um, I mean, it's I think, not going to matter in the end, but yeah. I mean, I feel like we just completely underestimate Toronto because we're not accustomed to seeing them yet. For somehow they're yeah. not yet in our psyche. As and the a only thing, team. the only thing I haven't looked at, I should have brought this in was I think, but I think it is true. I think Toronto's record against. Boston, Cleveland, and Philadelphia, and if you took the elite teams in the West, let's say, is actually a poor record. I think that's the, maybe you would yeah, agree that I, that's I, I, relevant I, for the regular season. Well, if you want listen, to say, if anything relevant, forget the reg, the record. Yeah. How do you do against, against the good teams? Against yeah, good if you teams. want to put, place yeah. any analytical value into the numbers, the Toronto differential is almost twice as high as the next best differential. Which is the Celtics? Yeah, I just I think we're all sort of, and that's a lot. I mean, mm-hmm. no, no, no. That's a it, it, that's a big just, number. I so, guess I guess Eric is suggesting, and I would agree that you would want to. Uh, it, it would be nice to look at that subsetted by quality of opponent or something like that, right? Because uh, you know we have, I guess, this working theory now that they're beating up on the good on the really poor teams and not actually performing all that well against the good teams, and that does have relevance for the players. And by the way, the thing that still hasn't changed about Cleveland is they still don't play much defense. I mean, yeah, they beat Toronto last night, but you know, a good game for Cleveland on defense. They only gave up 106 points. This is the first time they've given up like less than 110 in a long time. So. You know, we'll see how it goes. But I'm betting with Cleveland. I'm going yeah. with Cleveland. Yeah. All right. We are down to just the last few minutes of this first quarter. Anything else around the world of sports you guys interested in touching on at, up front? Well, you know, we have some, some two new managers and, and, our, and two of our favorite teams in, in, in uh, Philadelphia. Gabe Kapler is now the manager of the Phillies. Okay. And Aaron Boone is now the manager of the Yankees. The Red Sox and, have and, a new manager, too, and, I guess. Well, I'm no, not really paying attention to that. Okay. Um, and... <laughs> And there's been some horrible managerial gaffes in the first week. Oh, really? Particularly Gabe Kapler. He's uh, he called someone in from the bullpen without ha- having anyone warm- warming up. He had like a position player <laughs> pitching in like the first couple games because he burned through his bullpen. Correct. Oh. Yeah, he's he and he's uh, really trying to do this kind of analytical, advanced technique of really using your bullpen. Bringing them in early, but you have not to like that. You've been saying this I for been, years, but he's not managing it right. I mean, interesting, interesting. When we first started, this was my position, and I remember when we first started, we asked Rick Peterson about this, and he said, "Well, wait a minute. You can't just bring in the pitcher. You've got to get them ready, and you've got to think about the circumstances that get them to that position." And here we have Gabe Kapler making just those mistakes. Well, let's talk about the game that I was at, which was again the Rays Red Sox opener. I was screaming. I almost wanted to scream your name out there when the Red Sox did not bring in their closer. 
on, in the most key situation of the game, the Red Sox were up. I forget the score. Maybe it was four to one yeah. or three to one with the bases loaded, and Bernard Spann, the only decent hitter on the Rays, was up. And they left in their, according to advanced stats, their fourth best pitcher to face him, as opposed to bringing in the closer. And the right. Rays, Rays had two hits the entire game. The Rays hadn't hit anybody, and you let the Rays' best hitter go up against the Red Sox' fourth best okay, relief so, pitcher. So made no sense. Made no sense. So Aaron Boone and his managerial gaffe of the of the season so far, the Yankees were down, were up by one run. It was second and third, and it was the bottom of the eighth inning. They had Robertson in, and they walked Donaldson to get to Smoke. Now, you might say Donaldson last has the last couple of years has been better than than Smoke, but Donaldson's slightly injured, and they went with the, the five last five at-bat theory, which Smoke had struck out five times against Robertson. <laughs> And, <laughs> and they just went with that, and because loading the bases actually gives about three or four percent advantage to the hitting because team because of hit by pitch walks. Because it, it makes it, it it just ties up the pitcher because they have no open. How many base. runs ahead were they? They were one run ahead, and so it was. Uh, and, and I'm screaming at the screen, Boone, this is a big mistake. Mm-hmm. And of course, Robertson had to pitch very very carefully. Went nine pitches. But you know the logic. One. You know the Grand logic. Slam. Of course, the people like to use there. <laughs> well, that run doesn't matter. It's, you know, because two runs takes the lead for the other team. That run doesn't matter. Yeah, but what really matters is you don't want to give up any runs. It's not about the third run. It's about the first run. But I did a calculation. I think you think about the 3% advantage that you, you gave up. That's a lot. That's that's about as valuable as one of the third or fourth best players added to your team over the course of the season. It's about five extra wins over the course of a season if you give up 3%. That's a lot. That's a massive effect size. Yes. What? Sorry, maybe no, I'm, saying, I may, I'm let me shocked understand by the, I'm that effect sh- size again. Sorry. So if you, if you, if you, in other words, if you add three percent winning percentage to your game, on, the each game. on every game, on the game, on every on game, game, on every game, bases one time increases the three percent. Wow, in this I particular, it was an it's a very change. You're talking about a game win change. Well, no, this is a, is a very it was the leverage effect in this on this point is eight. This is a, you can look these things up. The I mean, at the end of the game, is, uh, eight at, times more important. At yes, the end of the game, an at-bat change is basically a game at the change, end of the game, too, right? At the end right. Of the but also, I mean, just really doing the math. So this decision, this poor decision on Aaron Boone's part, is, a, is, is, is about as good as well, adding Mike well, Stanton well, to your well, life way to, or John Carlos. Yeah, well, here's the way to think life. about it. I mean, if no, I'm just saying 3% times 162 games is five extra wins. Who wouldn't take five extra wins? I mean, that's another way to another metric to translate it. Most people think a great player is not going to add more than five wins to your team. That's a if it three percent's a huge number. Well, in thank goodness the situation's not going to pop every pop up every single game <laughs> no, for him to make that mistake. But, but it's a decision. We, the the challenge in these settings is that we're talking about historical numbers and over the long run run and and they and the the people who make decisions are always worried about the particulars of that situation and they're going to always argue away from this. Yeah, sure, well, long run. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I care about this thing and they're going to have sixteen circumstances that are unique to that setting. So I asked Brandon. I'm Harris not saying it's right immediately saying, about this decision because I saw him yesterday and he said if if he had not walked Donaldson and Donaldson had hit a home run or gotten a single he would have taken so much flack in the yeah, press mm-hmm. exactly. that mm-hmm. he just had to yeah. do this yeah, yeah, yeah. okay very good fellas that is the first quarter of this week's show we still have three quarters to go come back and join us after the break welcome back to Wharton Moneyball two hours of sports analytics live every Wednesday morning 8 to 10 Eastern Cade Massey hosting this morning with the whole crew Audie Weiner Eric Bradlow, Shane Jensen, the four creators, co-creators of Wharton Moneyball four years ago. You can jump in here and join the conversation. Give us a ring, one eight four four wharton That's one 942 7866 
You can also email us, businessradio at SiriusXM.com, businessradio at SiriusXM.com. It's actually a great way to reach us. We do respond real time. We also collect them over the course of the week. You can reach out on Twitter, at WMoneyBall. At WMoneyBall is our handle. We follow all of our guests. We tweet periodically. It's a good way to ask us questions. You can I've been us- getting lots of questions at WMoneyBall recently because I've been actively tweeting during live events. And we also get suggestions for the show. We get articles. We get um, over-unders. If you have an over-under for the end of the show, throw it to us on Twitter, and, and, we'll, and we'll fold it into the list. So we're just out of the open lines first <coughs> quarter. We're rolling into one of our guest segments. In the next half hour, we have Rob Maines joining us. Rob is an author on Baseball Prospectus. He has a regular column up there called Flu-Like Symptoms, writing about baseball. He's been doing that in various places pen fan graphs he is interestingly a former wall street guy 25 years doing equities research before rolling into the baseball analytics and writing world rob welcome to the show thanks kate Uh, glad to be here we're delighted to have you where are you calling in from this morning uh upstate new york saratoga springs where i'm hoping we get just rain and not snow today oh my 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 that is beautiful country um you it looks like you uh you have spent some time in that part of the world before. You have an MBA from RPI, right, which is not too far from there? Yeah, correct. I moved up here. Uh, my first uh, career was systems and programming and didn't find any good jobs up here in that field, so I went to get an MBA to kind of uh, switch gears. Got it. Well, Saratoga Springs is a great place to settle in. We, we've, we've, uh, Lake Placid north of there is about as good a summer place as I know to spend a little time. So a little jealous hearing about that part of the world, but delighted to have you on the show to talk about the thing. We talk any baseball with you anytime, but the thing that caught our eye recently was your article on clutch hitting. And it looks like something you presented at some conferences and then wrote a two-part piece on baseball prospectus. And we're going to want to hear more about that. But to get us started, can you, can you tell us about this transition you made from Wall Street to baseball analytics and baseball writing? How did you pull that off, and, and, and what even motivated it? Well, the, it's kind of a two-part motivation. The, the motivation of leaving Wall Street was just that um, I got I, I liked what I did. I was an equities analyst following the healthcare industry. It was fun job, met some great people, but it's pretty demanding, and I just got tired of it, <laughs> to be honest with you. Um, and, uh, you know, I when you've got a job that you're kind of constantly working, the idea of doing absolutely nothing is pretty abhorrent. And so I've always had an interest in baseball analytics back from the days of the first Bill James annuals that kind of uh, opened my eyes to the entire field. And a couple years before I stopped working, I'd started, like a lot of people in the writing business do, with my own kind of stupid blog where I wrote my own stuff. And then I started submitting it to a couple places, um, Fangraphs Community, uh, Banished to the Pen, which is an offshoot of the Effectively Wild podcast. <laughs> and uh, I got a little bit of recognition, and I wound up being able to uh, do this as a kind of regular gig for baseball perspective certainly not full-time not looking for something like what i was doing before but i think in a way that the two fields are sort of related finance and analytics and in both cases we're kind of looking at numbers in order to uh, uncover greater truths whether it's the growth prospects for a company or the uh, winning prospects for a team exactly i'm most curious to hear that story curious how you think your analysis is different or maybe better because of having worked 25 years in that kind of job versus the typical baseball analyst well i, I think i've got a couple advantages now 
okay, full disclosure, I don't even know how to program an R. So a lot of the heavy-duty numbers stuff, and I don't have uh, background in advanced statistics, I will certainly cede to guys like Rob Arthur, who I know has been on the show, or Russell Carlton, at my uh, sure. another baseball prospectus guy. But a couple things that I think I bring to the table is, number one, when you're an equities analyst, your job is to analyze companies, get way into the weeds in what they're doing and what their industry is doing, and be able to communicate that in an understandable way to portfolio managers who don't have the bandwidth to get really deep. So um, I think I've got the ability to go into the details of what's going on with a player or with a league trend or anything like that and explain that in a way that most people can understand. And uh, the second uh, thing that I've been able to make a little bit of a niche for myself is looking at baseball economics from sort of an investment portfolio perspective, not considering whether teams are playing paying their major league players enough or their minor league players enough, but just kind of looking at the returns that team, team ownership is getting on their investments in franchises and judging whether those returns are really warranted or whether there's some rent-seeking going on. Right. And you can probably guess, by the way, I uh, frame that where I come down. <laughs> right, <laughs> right, right, right. Well, listen, we, we, we're, we're, we were delighted to see the analysis you did on clutch hitting, bringing some of these tools and advantages you've just talked about from your equity experience to a question that... People kick around all the time. I mean, I, I've read articles on this here and there for 20 years probably on clutch hitting. Does it exist? Does it not exist? It's a question that many analysts are skeptical about. It's kind of one of these classic things where the layperson and the typical announcer make a big deal out of something that the analytics community is, 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 might believe isn't there at all. So you dug into this, and can you tell us a little bit about what you did and what you found? Yeah, and you're absolutely right, Kate, that this has been going on forever in uh, the analytics communities in terms of, of what uh, a topic people have looked at. And in fact, I had the opportunity on this project to work with, and when I say work with, I mean he did all the heavy statistical lifting, Pete Palmer, who's one of the real pioneers of the industry, and actually did the numbers work behind the initial foray into analyzing uh, clutch hitting, which occurred way back in the 1970s, uh, oh, wow. before okay. Bill James or anything like that. And what, what Pete did is he kind of dusted off the uh, methods he used then, uh, using much greater data set, much greater computing power today. And the idea was that um, to look at clutch hitting in this way, because you're right, people think that this is a skill that that uh, exists, and you know it's kind of a knock to say that the sabermetric community doesn't believe in clutch hitting at all, because it's absolutely true that if you look at the numbers, pick two guys. Dansby Swanson did far better in clutch situations last year than he did in his other at-bats. You can't deny that. Uh, Aaron Judge did far worse in clutch situations last year than in other situations. That's undeniable. Um, what the sabermetric community says is that while that is true on a season-to-season basis, for uh, skill to really exist, it's got to be replicable. It's got to be something that we can observe year after year. And the knock is the clutch hitting doesn't exist year after year. Um, that's been the contention of the community. So what Pete did is he looked at every player from the post-war era and looked at every one of their plate appearances, and for each plate appearance calculated basically how many um, 
runs they added uh, based on a win probability added model, which is to say in a you know key situation and you hit a single, that's worth more than if your team's trailing by six runs and you hit a single. And he summed up all the runs that uh, players created in that sort of situation-dependent environment and then compared that to the number of runs they created in a situation-independent environment, which is kind of a basic runs-created type formula where you're just looking at overall production uh, without uh, considering the situation in which that production occurred. So just to make sure, uh, just to make sure we understand that you're talking about comparing production, average production versus especially important situation production. In short, exactly. Okay. Yeah, situation dependent versus situation independent, that sort of thing. Okay. So uh, the and can walk us through what he found. Yeah, and so what what uh, what we did then is we just calculated z scores to compare each player's performance, and this is this was a massive data set, almost nine thousand players who had five hundred more plate appearances in a year since World War II, and what we found was that again in in the individual year there are some players that did exceptionally well or exceptionally poorly, but when we dug into who those players were and what the patterns were, that's where I think the clutch hitting argument kind of broke down for a couple reasons. First of all, you know, when you're looking at any kind of a new statistic, um, this is a Bill James phrase that I'm going to kind of butcher exactly what he said, but um, you want something that mostly confirms what you already knew, but also conveys some new information. Right, right. So the first thing we looked at is, okay, which guys year after year do well and uh by doing well i define that as finishing in the top five percent of uh qualifiers for a number of seasons and that's sort of you know randy jones for strikeouts was consistently top five percent harman killebrew for home run percentage was consistently top five percent you know talking about all-time greats but all-time greats do tend to uh float to the top year after year and what we found was there were only two players who were in the top 5% of clutch hitting, that is hitting better in clutch situations um, than in other situations, or in the bottom 5% um, for more than five years. Mm-hmm. And those two players were kind of odd choices. The one who was six years, the only player six years in the top 5% since World War II was Bert Caponeris, who mm-hmm. was a, people remember him, he was a longtime shortstop for the A's, mm-hmm. uh, pretty good player, um, but not exactly who you think of as a clutch god, and certainly never had that reputation mm-hmm. when he was playing. And the only player who was in the bottom 5% for more than five years, I thought this was even more comical, was Manny Ramirez. Mm-hmm. And Manny Ramirez um, is one of the only players in the last, 30 years, who um, has an OPS of over 1,000 in clutch or in high leverage situations, which is to say that while he was good in high leverage situations, maybe he wasn't as good as he was in all situations because Manny Ramirez, of course, hit really well all the time. Right. So the identity of those two players is a little disquieting, plus the fact that they only did it six years, and there were a lot of players who did it fewer years. That, I think, is kind of an indictment of the idea 
of clutch hitting. So, Rob, this is Eric Bradley. I just want to ask you a question about that one because as much as I hate the Red Sox, I have to give Manny Ramirez his props as one of the all-time great hitters in in league history. Is it? Let's imagine a situation where, for whatever reason, I'm not going to claim performance-enhancing drugs or anything, but for whatever reason, a player was non-stationary in their hitting. So maybe they had an extraordinarily good four- or five-year period, which raises their overall average. Would that make this statistic, like, in some sense, less statistically powerful? Because, you know, does your statistic make an assumption that I can take the person's entire history as the baseline and compare it? But maybe Manny Ramirez just had such extraordinary years for three or four or five years that that's why he looks poor in certain years. Well, no. Well, let, let me answer it two ways. Specifically, no, because what we were looking at was each individual season in a vacuum. So what we're saying is that Manny Ramirez had six years in which he I see. was really poor. He also had some years in which he was really outstanding. Um, I see. So you're not comparing it across seasons. It's a within-season statistic, and so that's a good point. You're using it in some sense as a control. How good was he overall in that year? Mm-hmm. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the... the example I, I look at for that david ortiz if you look at his batting average and of course he's the clutch hero of our generation david ortiz if you look at his batting average with leverage index of over 2.0 in his last six seasons were chronologically he went from 229 to 316 to 196 to 397 to 208 to 273 he just oscillated all over the place and what we would catch would be some of those seasons he did very well some of the seasons he did very poorly and that's what we were looking at there just in within the context of individual seasons Mm -hmm. we're talking to rob mains rob is author of baseball he's an author at baseball perspectives most recently of a piece on clutch hitting in baseball and of course this is wharton moneyball the whole crew is in here talking with rob at the moment rob that last observation more general than just david ortiz but that last observation was the main thing that i took away from the article that you just see too much variance year to year in any way you measure clutch performance, at least what you were able to measure, to consider it a persistent trait. Is that a fair summary? Is that a fair takeaway? That's absolutely right, because I think that was the most significant indictment of the idea of clutch hitting. Because the other thing that we looked at was not just who was consistently good, who was consistently bad. We looked for players who were in the top 5% in an individual in one season and in the bottom 5% mm-hmm. in other seasons. And that's that. That's you know that's the idea of you know the year that Rod Carew hit two twenty one or the year that Harmon Killebrew batted five hundred times and only had five bombs. I mean, in in a replicable skill that a player either possesses or doesn't possess, that sort of oscillation should not occur. And what we found that there were twelve players in the period who were in the top five percent at least twice and in the bottom 5% at least twice. Mm-hmm. Not only does that, you know, that, that flies in the face of the idea of a replicable skill. I mean, that means that you have some years in which you're great and some years in which you're terrible. And that just doesn't happen if you're looking at batting average, if you're looking at um, walk percentage, any, any skill that yeah. we normally measure. Plus, the identity of those players was frankly kind of comical. I mean, you have guys like Tony Gwynn, Ortiz, Joe Morgan, yeah. Uh, Pete Rose, Rob, Carl Rob, this is Adi Weiner. The thing about this, the reason why you don't see that is that this is this is self-normalized. So you're talking about a comparison of your 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 high leverage uh, performance, your clutch performance versus the, the non-performance 
that's normalized by your performance. So for Manny to do really well in clutch, he has to do better in clutch than he does normally, which is very good. And so that is like a control which, which allows the variance to really stand out. So if you just compare batting averages of, of year-to-year performance, that's why the, the same players are in the top year after year because it's, it's the variance is over the entire um, talent pool of the entire Major League Baseball. When you're looking at this statistic, it's normalized per person. So that, that, that means the, the background of, of, uh, of uh, individual play, player effects is kind of crushed, and you just have the individual individual variances, which is dominates. This probably goes to the psychology of it also, which is why people watching baseball, the layperson, feels like the good players are clutch. They're not able to separate the base rate, That's the, right. the individual, exactly. the typical performance from yeah. this variance that, that we're trying to isolate. So, Rob, I like, I, this is Eric Bradlow again, I like what you just said at the end there, which is the question I was going to ask you, which you seem to have answered, but if you could say it again for our listeners, was... Are there other statistics that seem more replicable over time? You just mentioned walk percentage. You mentioned other things like that. So it's not like you can't find a statistic or an aspect of hitting, let's say, that there is some sort of serial correlation over time. This just isn't one of them. Exactly right. I mean, we can count on year after year pretty much any offensive measure you're going to look at, Mike Trout being at or near the top of the list. And same thing we can count on Adani Echevarria being at or near the bottom of the list. Certain players possess skills or don't possess skills, and that's not going to vary from year to year. If clutch hitting were a skill, we'd see players uh, outperform their overall performance year after year, and we don't see that. I I really like this line of thinking, so thank you. I think it's a really important thing, because one could argue, well, it's low power. You can't find anything that has this type of replicability, and there appears to be some aspects that you can. There is is an approach that you might want to consider it which is to abandon the idea of trying to to locate individual hitters which are clutch but instead imagine that that does this whole idea of clutch at least exist as a thing for the entire of baseball and so what i would imagine doing is for every player kind of create a um estimate a, a clutch index and then use that out of sample going forward to make forecasts and and see if that adds predictive accuracy to your to the performance going forward so you're not really trying to identify individual player success because there's too little signal and too much noise, but as a You're whole, a model a model that allows or or incorporates clutchness should perform pr- perform better in terms of future prediction than right. a model if, that if it's does true. not. If, if, if it's true, if, if, if clutch it's true. exists, and you do it, this as a whole. So we're just looking for a clutch effect for like all of baseball, rather than trying to look at it as as individual. No, I, I think the historical arguments against that is that clutch, if it does exist, is presumed to exist for a small enough subset of players that you may not... Even if clutch does truly exist for a subset of players, which is what you're trying to find in this particular analysis, then it might not be enough, substantial enough players or a substantial enough effect to move the needle when you're looking across all of baseball. Absolutely, but the idea would be we would have slightly more power this way Mm -hmm. rather than drilling down at each individual player. Rob, we're down to just we're down to just a few minutes, and we know you've got other work, and we'd love to have you back to talk about this stuff that you're working on. Can you give us just a couple minutes on your latest piece, which is about how predictive April performance is for a team's full season? Yeah, this is something I've written about before because it kind of drives me nuts that people draw inferences about the first few days of the season or or the first month. So what I looked at um, was teams that have done. <laughs> exceptionally well and 
or exceptionally poorly in April. And I define that as over 600 winning percentage or below 400 winning percentage. That's mm-hmm. a 97 win or loss type pace in April. Mm-hmm. How they did the rest of the year. Now, most cases, they did well. You know, team that does well in April is probably one that's going to do well in May or any other month. However, what I found was in both cases, over 25% of the teams that did either very well in April or very poorly in April, wound up completely flipping their winning percentage over the rest of the season, which is to say the 600 teams, over 25% of them were below 500 after that, and the 400 teams, over 25%, nearly 30%, in fact, were above 500 the rest of the year. Right, right. It reminds me of a game, I think it's Audie's favorite game to play coming up in the next few weeks, is basically projecting win totals. At any point in the season, projecting win totals for the for the full season, and it's just a it's an exercise in regression. That's all it is. It's much more regression to the mean than you think. Yeah, and one of the things previous year, one of the things I looked at was batter and pitcher performance in April compared to the right. rest of the season. What I found is that it's less correlated in that month than it is in any other month of the year. Rob, we were just asking this question last week. This is exactly my opening day question to the team last week: is how you know are there differences in in is is one, or what, some positions more predictive early in the season than other positions? Does it does it take longer to warm up in some positions than others? Yeah, if that there you got that. Plus, in April you've got a smaller sample size in terms of games played. The got two it. least correlated months are April and July. And July, of course, has the All Star break. I see. But overall, if you're drawing inferences from April, you're probably not going to do as well as if you draw it in any other month. Got it. All right. Well, listen, Rob, thanks for taking the time to be with us. Keep up the great work. We hope to talk to you more down the road. Thanks. I really enjoyed it. You bet. You bet. That was Rob Maines calling in from Saratoga Springs, New York. He's an author on Baseball Prospectus. He's a longtime Wall Street equities analyst, but now he's working, dabbling anyway, quite productively, in baseball analytics and writing. That has been the first half of Wharton Moneyball. We still have two quarters to go. Come back and join us after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics live every Wednesday morning, 8 to 10 Eastern. Live from... Huntsman Hall, Sirius XM Business Radio Studios here at the Wharton School. Cade Massey hosting this morning with all my buddies and faculty colleagues here, Eric, Audie, Shane, just off the phone with Rob Means talking baseball analytics. Terrific analysis, terrific research on clutch hitting. It's not every day you're excited about a null result, but that was an exciting null result. I love it when he talks about the control group. You know, he it's a very thoughtful control group, which is yourself. Yourself tends to be a good control, by the right, way. Right, right, right. Next half hour, another guest. We are delighted to have Jake Nichols back on the show. Jake is now with the 15th Club. We'll ask Jake to tell us more about what 15th Club is up to. Very interesting outfit based out of the U.K. Jake was kind of doing his own work for a long time on golf analytics, one of the first into that world, and one of the leaders in it. Jake, welcome back to the show. Thanks a lot, kid. Nice to join you. Where are you calling in from this morning? Uh, I am in Pennsylvania today. Where, well, welcome. Where are you in Pennsylvania? Why we can't you here? see you from here. What's <laughs> what's going on? Yeah, I'm in uh, Scranton, PA. Okay, not too not too far. You should consider no, dropping in on us sometime. We'd love to have you in anytime. So, Jake, tell us what's going on with fifty. Remind the listeners for for a moment what Fifteenth Club is, and you've been there now. I don't know, a couple years, year and a half, two years. 
and um, and what you guys are up to. Right. So we are a uh, golf analytics and another side of the business works in football analytics consultancy. By football, you mean so soccer? We work with right, right. Football meaning soccer. Um, that's that side of the business is Twenty First Club. Okay. And we work with professional players, um, media organizations like Sky, like Sky Sports in the UK, and then Ryder Cup Europe. Right. So we work across pretty much any area where you can apply, you know, data and use it better in golf. So kind of the, kind of the sexiest thing that we would say about Fifteenth Club to brag on you guys is that you consult to the to the to the to the UK Ryder Cup team. You, you're literally giving data to the captains, Darren Clark, on what to do with his players and where. Yes? Right, exactly. So that's it's phenomenal story on, on gaining that kind of access and, and being credible and being able to add enough value to, to be a partner to those guys. So we're curious to hear how you're doing that. Your your own history, if I, if I remember correctly, we've been talking to you for years, and you were, I want to say, just an analyst doing, doing your own work. And um, how how did you get started real quickly, Jake? And then how did you transition over to 15th Club? Yeah, it was really a hobby that, that really started in college. Um, and it seemed like no one was really doing the type of work that I wanted to read. Uh, you just talked to, to Rob Manns at Baseball Prospectus, but there wasn't, a, there wasn't a golf prospectus or anything. Right. So instead of... You know, instead of sitting on the sidelines and reading, I, I really got into it and started doing my own research. Did your work and working with what data was available? Were you doing work before Brody stuff was was out there? No, um, I believe he was publishing stuff widely in the late like two thousand nine, two thousand ten. And I didn't really get involved until a year or two later. I, I literally think of you as a second man in. You know, Brody, ph- phenomenal story of Mark Brody coming up with you know, putts, putts, strokes gained putting or strokes lost putting, and then exp- and generalizing that to the entire course. Um, and then you, I mean, it felt to me for a long time, you were the second guy doing that work. You were kind of the only other guy doing that work. Yeah, I don't think I have had a breakthrough like strokes gained yet, but. I was, I was there at the beginning. How would you characterize golf in general in terms of interest and, um, I mean, I mean by that, the professional side and, and the production, the television side on, on analytics? I think it's been a very, very much a smoother transition than you've seen in some of the team sports, uh, mostly because you don't have, like, the stakeholders who are already in place, um, a more traditional manager or general manager or owner. Um, you can go right to the players. Oh, that is interesting. That is interesting, Jake. That's a huge impediment for some of the sports with stronger traditional cultures. Yeah, so, and, I, and I think it affects like data availability. I mean, I feel like the PGA was one of these first organizations to really try and try its best to kind of put its data out there, as opposed to kind of considering it property of the teams or whatever it would oh, be. Oh, interesting. Right, right, right. Okay. So, Jake, can yeah, you tell exactly. us? Can you tell us a little bit about how players themselves have received input from analysts? You know, it's it is a tricky situation for a guy on a couch, say. You know, it's an extreme example, but a, a guy on a couch to tell a professional athlete something about his game. How has that gone? You've been involved in some of those conversations. Yeah, exactly. Um, you really have to frame it um, in terms of what they can benefit from it, and really. Uh, really demonstrate that you're, you know, a subject matter expert on their game so that you can talk in their language. And, and really what we focus on is giving them realistic targets 
of how they can improve. Okay. For example, you need to hit your, your mid irons a foot closer mm-hmm. and that's worth this mm-hmm. and get them away from, we can give them a lot of detailed statistics about, you know, analyzing where they rank and how good they are at this area or that area. But it's really what we found is giving them realistic targets um, and really speaking their language is, is the way to communicate. Now, Jake, why is it that telling somebody to put their iron shots a foot closer to the hole is the product of analytics? Like, wh- why, what's the translation from your crunching numbers to that particular prescription? Uh, that is really just they want to know how can I get from average at this stat maybe to top 25% in the world. So you're, you're is it kind of like you, just you look where, at – I'm sorry, Jake. So you're, you kind of look across the, their game and say, here, here are the the frontiers that would be most productive to move on. Is that one way to think about it? Exactly. Yep. Perfect explanation. <laughs> yeah. So Jake, this is Eric Bradley. I I would. So I was watching. I watch all golf tournaments, but I was watching one recently. The one that Tiger. I think this was maybe at the Valspar, where I hadn't um, related to the statistic you just mentioned. I don't know it. It was the first time I had ever heard them quote a statistic of. When the person's on the green, what's the average distance to the pin? And Tiger was ahead by like 10 feet on that particular statistic. So one way is a good way to think about this is, you know, greens and regulation has historically been one of the classic statistics in golf. But maybe conditional on being on the green, how far actually are you away from the pin? Is that the way you've kind of thought about this? Yeah, proximity, those sort of stats just blow uh, greens and regulation out of the water looking at how far someone is away from the pin that has so much more explanatory power and predictive power than, than greens and regulation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Jake, can you give us an example of something that you've seen recently that you're curious about or has your attention in golf? You've been chipping away at this thing for a number of years now. What are you paying attention to right now? Uh, so one of the things we're working on right now is looking at putting and how um, where players leave their putts on the green. Mm-hmm. So are they getting their putts to the hole? Are they getting them too far past the hole, too short? So the, um, Because the, when you really look at the best putters, they are the ones who are getting the ball to the hole and so, giving them the chance to, if it's on the right line, it goes in the hole. Okay, so can you tell us a little bit more about that? Because that's the received wisdom. What you hear about out there on the course from you know generations past when you're learning golf is you don't you just don't leave your ball short. And... Do you so you're saying the analytics support that? And what are there any particular numbers that you can share? Sure, I can give you uh, an anecdote from Jordan Spieth, who has uh, over the last five years been one of the best in the world from sort of that um, 10 to 15, 25 foot range. Right, he, he just rolls them in more than anyone else from that range. And when you look at the data, no one has gotten the ball to the hole or past the hole more in the last five years from that range than Jordan Spieth. No kidding. And that's, yeah, that's something that correlates to, to other good putters from that range is, is you have to give it a chance, but the best guys can control their miss, so they're not leaving themselves five-footers coming back like maybe a 10 handicapper would. Is this related to the pro side of the cup and the amateur side of the cup? Like you miss, pros miss high more often relative to when, where amateurs miss? Because you'd have yeah, to... I would say definitely amateurs are, are not getting their ball uh, the correct speed, yeah, enough speed. Okay, interesting. All right, so we're talking to Jake Nichols. Jake is a longtime golf analyst now with 15th Club. 
Jake, it's Masters Week, of course, and you know we're not all like Eric Bradlow watching all the tournaments every week, but everyone, most folks are going to be aware of and, and turn in at some point to the Masters. And, of course, this year it's got a little more oomph than, than usual because, oh, my gosh, here comes Tiger Woods again. How are you thinking about the tournament? Have you seen anything interesting in the data? Yeah, I mean, it seems like there there hasn't been uh, any more, you know, any bigger number of contenders in recent years. I think what we're seeing from Tiger Woods is that he is very nearly back to the kind of form that he was in um, prior to this this scandal, injury, everything that's happened over the last 10 years. Okay, Jake, can you make that more precise? Because uh, people, you know, it's it's easy to be skeptical of the media because they want Tiger Woods to be back in it, right? So you're saying the data support the case. So what are some of the data that show that he's actually back, almost back to form? Right, so the PGA Tour... Uh, tracks the sort of strokes gain total statistic, which is just all parts of your game. How is it performing? And even including some of his early events this season where he was still working his way into form, he's already back in the top 10 in that, in that area. Wow. And, and when you look at his last three events, the most recent ones in, in Florida, those are at a level where he's gaining on the field at the same level as when he was at his best about three to three and a half strokes per round on the field. Mm-hmm. And he's been, he's been at that level. Um, and you, I mean, it, it makes sense cause he's been sniffing around the lead for, for most of these tournaments. Right. So at the, at the aggregate level, he is performing nearly as well as he did back then. What about his game? Is his game, have you broken down his game? Is it, how similar is it to what it used to be? Yeah, it's, it's really hitting the same sort of areas. It's not like he's relying on, on something that he hasn't relied on in the past. Yeah, the he's driving fis- the ball about as as well as he did in the past, which is not particularly well. And he's really relying on the strokes gain putting and strokes gain approach shots. Hmm. So really, that's where he's gaining his strokes, and that's where he gained them in the past. Hmm. Yeah, this is Eric Bradley. The three things, the the one stat that I've used the most to show that he's somewhat back is i think jake you can correct me doesn't he have something currently like 10 or 11 consecutive rounds at par or better i mean it's some i know for a fact the last two tournaments he's played he has shot par so at least eight rounds but it was more than that i think he's got something like 11 consecutive rounds at par or better which shows that he isn't blowing up on rounds and the other side i think i already mentioned on the air which was at least at the valspar he was literally almost 10 feet closer to the hole on average once on the green than any other player in the entire field the other stat i remember seeing was at, at, I think it was at the last tournament, he came ended up coming in fifth, but it was something like 55 of 55 on putts of nine feet or shorter. Right, and that, in the Bay Hill tournament, only Rory McIlroy, who won by several, was making more putts inside 12 feet than he did. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, really hitting on, and, and like you said, the consistency. You know, it's not 64 one day and 75 the next. It's from the Valspar, 70, 68, 67, 70. Jake, how do you think about consistency in general, especially when we're trying to forecast golf performance? It, it feels like this is a t- such a tough thing to predict because it is volatile. Yeah, we look at um, sort of we have a stat we just call consistency, and it's basically your variance round the round. And when we look at, at certain players, you can see that consistently over several seasons that they are – 
their the dispersion of their scores around the round is lower than the field and for certain other players it's higher so a traditional mr consistency type player would be someone like matt kuchar or bill haas and what that means is they're shooting 66 less often than someone like a more um uh, less consistent player, I mean, than someone like Justin Thomas or Thomas Peters. Well, so that's not necessarily a virtue, right, when it comes to golf. That means these guys are going to be, you know, often showing but rarely winning kind of thing? Exactly. And when you look at Justin Thomas, the fact that he's been inconsistent round to round has led to him winning eight times in the last several seasons, <laughs> whereas Matt Kuchar, I don't even know if he has a single title in that time period. He, he does not, and that's, you know, it's interesting that you picked out, that Cade picked out Matt Kuchar, because, you know, as I've been studying the Masters and the different players. Matt Kuchar has more top tens than anybody in the last ten Masters, but he's not going to win the Masters. Right. He will make the cut. I almost can guarantee <laughs> you Matt Kuchar's going to make the cut, and may end up in the top ten, but winning the Masters, he's not even among the ten favorites. Now, Jake, is that something that you could actually work with a player on? I mean, would it, would it be possible to go into one of these guys that that's super consistent, but but perhaps too low a variance to win, and say, hey, you got to take more chances around the course? It's often a product of sort of their the fingerprint of their game. So Matt Kuchar, he scrambles really well, he puts well. Um, but he's not someone who's who's going to go out and hit 310-yard drives. Mm-hmm. Whereas on the other hand, Justin Thomas is, you know, a good hole for him. He'll blast a drive down the middle of the fairway. He's the best wedge player on the PGA Tour, so he'll, he'll hit the wedge close and he'll make birdie. But on the next hole, he might, you know, hit it into the trees and, and make <laughs> bogey. All right. Well, I wanted you to tell us more about Justin Thomas because of the guys at the top of the favorites board, Justin's is the newest name, I would say. And people who've been paying a lot of attention to golf know know him because he's been tearing it up, as you say, a lot of wins in the last two years. But, you know, compared to a Spieth Woods, Dustin Johnson, Phil Mickelson, he's just a less familiar name. What else can you tell us about Justin Thomas's game? It sounds like he's going to be a guy that we should be paying attention to this weekend. Yeah, I really think the, the stars are kind of aligning for him this year. When I When I look at the Masters, I look at three different areas. First of all, how good are you just in general at golf? And our predictive stat has him number one um, in terms of scoring round to round. The second thing I look at is how much of a winner are you in terms of when uh, you have a certain level of ability, but how often do you convert that into wins? And no one in the last decade has been better at that than Justin Thomas. No one in the last decade? Wow. In terms of he hasn't been... Only for the last several months has he been a, a truly elite top of the board player, mm-hmm. but he's been racking up wins like crazy. Mm-hmm. Now, is and that so something? The, real quickly, you, I know you've got a third stat to come with, but that one's particularly interesting. We just we just had a segment with Mames, as you know, on clutch hitting in baseball. How how much are you tapping into clutch there? Like, what are, what do you think you're tapping into with that stat? I think you're tapping into a, a range of things. Um, for example, a few weeks ago in the in the WGC in Mexico. He started the first two rounds and was well off the lead. Um, didn't really have a chance going into the weekend. Except, and, and for some players, you know, they'd be happy, especially an event that doesn't have a cut, to just finish out the weekend and take their check and go home. Instead, he went out and shot the best round of the day the next two days and made it into a playoff. So you can tap into a lot of sort of commitment to, you know, grinding out every shot. 
and then of course there's there's clutch items like the week before that in Mexico the week before Mexico you know he got into a playoff and hit a wedge to to five feet to win the tournament so there's you know it can be clutch it can be commitment it can be you know more hidden factors that we had not identified yet. So this is sufficiently interesting, and we've talked about it explicitly over the years because it's t- you just don't have a very large sample to deal with when you're trying to identify clutch in, in golf. Can you tell us precisely what it is you mean by given a guy's ability, his given his base rate scoring or whatever, whatever however you want to measure ability, his likelihood of converting wins? What is it exactly you're doing? So we look at, at all top-level tournaments, and order the field by their performance and then run a, a large regression to basically say, given this level of talent, how often should they have won the tournament? Hmm. And then and then the what's left over, the sort of residual in the model is how often are they converting wins, you know, above what you would expect. So obviously Tiger Woods, you'd expect him to win you know, in his prime, a quarter or a third of tournaments because he is so good. But Justin Thomas over the last few years is perhaps he's been a the 10th or 15th best player in the world on average, but he's won as much as anyone else. How how predictive do you think those residuals are? Because somebody inevitably within a single regression, somebody's going to end up with a positive residual there. Are they? Do they mean, how much do they mean out of sample? Have you been able to look at that much? Yeah, out of sample, they, they replicate. Wow. Okay, interesting. Okay, you said there were three stats, though. You were, you, were, you were breaking down the Masters field, and you said there were three ways you look at this. One was just how good they're playing, and you said Justin Thomas was um, number one in the world right now, according to your predictive model. Then you said their ability to convert their, their, their latent ability into wins. Again, Justin Thomas, top of the world. But there was a third stat there. Right, and it's the traditional one that everyone likes to debate at the Masters, course fit or course form. Right, right. And... What we really look at in that area are are two big factors. How long can you hit it? Are you more reliant on being a big hitter instead of a straight hitter? And that's sort of the spectrum from Phil Mickelson, long and wild, to Henrik Stenson, more average but very straight. And we find that the, the longer hitters always always play better. And, and the second area is how reliant are you on your approach play? You know how good is your ball striking, and that's another area where, where if you look back through Augusta champions, that they, they all are are sticking out in that area. Is that something we like about the Masters? Is that they reward these two seemingly different skills because one it's open, and then two, they're the greens are so so challenging. Yeah, I think we recognize sort of the value of of hitting it in the right spot and hitting it close with the Masters because everyone can see a poor shot hit in the wrong area, roll down the bank 30 yards mm-hmm. away from the green. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What else is it that you think, well, let me let me, let me me remind folks that we're, we're talking to, to Jake Nichols. Jake is a golf analyst, a long time, one of the guys who worked on the Frontiers in golf analytics, now with 15th Club. We're talking with Justin, I mean, with Jake about golf in general, but also the Masters. What, what, what from an analytics perspective, do you think it is that makes the Masters so special? So it's a, there's a time of year, there's a place, we're always back to the same course. But are there other things about the tournament, the structure, or, the, or Augusta that separate it from the other majors? I think it's another one that is, is sort of common knowledge, and it's the excitement on the back nine. Um, when you look at it statistically, 
you look at the five critical holes at the course, sort of the ones where um, there's the biggest gap between a good shot, a good hole, and a bad shot, a bad hole. The top five are all in the back nine, 12, 13, 15, 16, 18. So what it really gives someone a chance to do is if they can string together good shots for nine holes, they can make up four shots on the back nine and, and, and hunt someone down. And on the other hand, if like Jordan Spieth in 2016, if you hit a few bad shots, those errors compound and can drop you right off the top of the leaderboard. Jake, and you have, you're saying that in the data, you can, you can, you can operationalize that precisely with your numbers. It's not just a, it's not just conventional wisdom. Right. It's, we look at the variance and scoring on holes. And when you compare Augusta national to other courses, um, all, a lot of their holes are in the top sort of 10%, 10th percentile wow. of, of sort of variance and scoring. Yeah, Jake, this is Eric Bradlow again. I, first of all, I completely agree with you. The most exciting thing about the Masters is 13 and 15 are par fives. 16 has a bank that slopes right towards the hole. It's a par three, but on the unfortunate thing, the other side of that hole is the water. So those three holes itself, in theory, you can go eagle, eagle, birdie. You could also end up plus two over par. But I wanted to ask you, follow up to Cade's question. I would think the one thing that separates the Masters from the other majors is it's the only major that's actually played at the same course every year. Mm-hmm. So I would imagine one of the things that, and, and I'd love it to know if you guys have studied the role of experience at the Masters in some mm-hmm. sense, if, if given the importance of hitting it to the right, correct side of the green, wouldn't someone that has experience, even conditional on their quality of current play, have an advantage? Because if they're going to miss, they know you can't miss on this side or that side. Right, yeah. And we have, we have done some research in that area. And what what we found is the value of, or the penalty, I should say, of being a rookie at that event is about twice what it is at a normal event. No kidding. Hmm. Which which it's, it sounds like a lot, but really what we look at it at normal events is a rookie might lose half a shot over four rounds, whereas at the Masters it, it might be worth one shot. Oh, wow. Okay, so it is small. And then are you saying most of the experience uh, effect is – is right there at the beginning that it that it that it um there's no like playing there for 20 years ben crenshaw is an advantage or phil mickelson isn't advantaged uh we haven't looked at at sort of the compounding effect of, okay. of advantage just at, at rookies yeah well okay. it's a great point you ask because i was even thinking that it might be like an inverted you like you know larry mize is playing the masters this year you know he won the 87 masters he gets to play for life and you know he's played it probably 40 times mm-hmm. none of us is picking larry mize to win at, and by the way no one over the age of 40 has won the masters in over 20 years so you have to balance out, in some sure. sense, the lifetime of golfers versus experience. Well, you, you raise another question for Jake, which is the age effect. And this is something, this is a challenge for analysts because it seems to be changing over time. These guys are in much better shape than they were 30 years ago. What, do you, what kind of age effects do you see? And what, how much should we be discounting the prospects for people like Tiger and Mickelson merely because of their age? Well, I think the two of them are, are sort of outliers just because of their sort of commitment to staying at the top of the game. A lot of what I've observed in the aging effects for 40-plus players is you sort of lose the commitment to, you know, spend several hours every day working on your game like Phil Mickelson or Tiger Woods does. Wow, okay. Um, So I, I think we can set those two kind of aside in terms of 
there's a physical decline and also, um, you know, how much are you working on your game decline. Mm-hmm. But in general, over this is something that I can share that we're still kind of trying to refine this research, but we've definitely noticed that the aging curve is, is shifting just over the last five years, mm-hmm. that there's mm-hmm. more young players coming into the game that are forcing these older players out, you know, a year or two earlier than even 10 years ago. Oh, hold on. You're saying it's shifting back younger. Correct. That, that what we're seeing is players are having more success earlier in their careers. So they're peaking instead of maybe peaking at 30, they're peaking at 27. Wow. And that because there's this whole generation of, of great young players, that older players are falling off sooner. You know, mm. instead of starting your decline in your late 30s, it's maybe 37 or 36. Is that because it's comparative? Essentially, the pool of young players is so good that the older players just, their decline is, is so uh, much more dramatic relative. Yeah, exactly. It might not be that in terms of, you know, in terms of looking at them against themselves a year or two earlier. Right. They haven't really changed. But it's that the bar is being raised. Can I can I just ask another question? Because you're, you're talking about the the burst of incredibly uh, top talent among very young players. We're seeing this in other sports dramatically, particularly baseball. You're seeing just a huge crew of very young, superly successful, super successful baseball players. Do you know why? Do you have any indication of why in golf you'd you'd imagine that it takes some amount of skill and I mean experience and and training to get to to become an elite level golfer um why would why do you think we have this um this plethora if you will of uh young golfers uh we haven't done any specific research in the area but what i can share is that this isn't exactly unprecedented there's been times in golf's past where um younger players have disproportionately been collecting wins and and other you know other markers of success sort of in the in the early 80s as the the Jack Nicholas era declined there was a huge crop of, of very talented young players coming onto the scene so perhaps this is cyclical I think if you talk to other people you'll look at training methods and track man and right. um, the tiger effect of bringing more athletes into the, into the sport right right but right definitely something that requires more research Jake, we're down to just a couple of minutes. We can't let you go without getting some names from you about players you think we should be paying attention to um, this week. You've, you've been talking about, obviously you've been talking about the, the, the hot young phenom in Justin Thomas. Maybe I'm, he sounds like he's your favorite. Can you give us someone from the next tier that you think might be lining up, uh, things might be lining up well for them? And then can, can you maybe give us a dark horse we ought to be paying attention to? Okay, so I can start with the dark horse. Um Thomas Peters, I think his game fits really well with the course, and he, he finished top four um, last season. And he, he really hasn't won much recently, um, as much as he had in the, in the years prior. But I think he's someone who, if, the, if he makes some putts, he should be there with a chance to win. All right. And someone who's maybe in the next tier, um, Paul Casey, he just won for the first time in almost a decade several weeks ago in Tampa. I think he's someone whose game fits in terms of he's one of the absolute best ball strikers in the world. Mm-hmm. And when we look at strokes gained statistics of the Masters, which we have available for the last three years, Jordan Spieth and Hideki Matsuyama are the only ones who have hit their irons better than Casey at, at okay. the Masters. So. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What about Spieth? 
He's our he's my Texas boy. Have we do we? I guess we'll never know until he's in contention again on the back nine on Sunday whether he's recovered from that. What what do you think's going on with Speed these days? Well, if you look at his uh, tee to green game, has never been better. He's driving it better than ever in his career. His iron play is near the top of the world, but it's just he hasn't been putting it as well. I mentioned earlier in the program he was the best in sort of the middle distance. And this year, he's not making those putts. Now, it could be a, a string of bad luck. It could be a technique issue that he suddenly corrects on the greens this week. Um, so that's something to look out for is it's just how he's putting because I think the ball striking will be there. Got it. All right. Well, listen, Jake, appreciate you taking the time to be with us. Love your work. Wish you the best with it going forward. Thanks a lot, guys. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. You bet. That was Jake Nichols. Jake, longtime golf analyst now with the 15th Club, outfit that consults to media players the industry in general on golf analytics. He's been a friend of the program for a couple of years now, talking masters and other issues. We're going to talk some more masters, I think, after the break. But now, for the moment, that's three quarters of the show. Come back and join us for the last quarter after the break. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics every Wednesday morning, 8 to 10 Eastern. This is Cade Massey hosting this morning with the whole crew, Shane Jensen, Audie Weiner, Eric Bradlow. You can join the conversation, 1-844-WHARTON, 1-844-942-7866. Open lines next half hour. Give us a ring or drop us an email, businessradio at SiriusXM.com, businessradio at SiriusXM.com. You can also reach us on Twitter these days. Our handle up there, at WMoneyBall, at WMoneyBall. You can follow or you can add us or you can ask questions, throw us articles. It's a good way to get in touch with us and also find out what we're thinking about on the sports analytics front. Just off the phone with Jake Nichols talking golf analytics and a little masters. Jake's one of the, really, honestly, one of the world's experts out there in golf analytics and doing all kinds of interesting work. And he's one of these guys who's transitioned from being a blogger in the basement to working with these professional athletes and a, as a real consultant. So his insight always valued. What did you guys pick up from that? What are you thinking about the masters? Well, the one thing I uh, caught my eye about the Masters is um, let me ask you a question. Here's the top ten favorites for the Masters, and just give me your opinion about whether you think this person can these, actually win the Masters. What's your source? This was uh, ESPN. Okay. And then also I confirmed it with the betting lines. Alright, I got the betting lines in front of me. Okay. So do you guys think Jordan Spieth can win the Masters? Yep. 100%. Okay. Can Tiger Woods win the Masters? Sure. Yes. Can Dustin Johnson win the Masters? Of yeah. course. Can Justin Thomas win the Masters? Sure. Yeah. Can Roy McIlroy win the Masters? You're going to have to throw in some person that doesn't well, even no, no, these are the top thing. Can, can Shane Jensen can, can, win the yeah. Masters? Can, bu- can Bubba Watson win the Masters? Yes. Yeah. Can Justin Rose win the Masters? Yes. Can sure. Phil Mickelson it goes win the Masters? No, 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 Mickelson's no, not going to no, win. All right, no. can Justin, uh, uh, Jason Day win the Masters? Probably not. Well, why? What, sure. Why not, do you know that that Phil Mickelson can't win the Masters? I don't. Because he's not. He's, he's listed. too old. How long has he been since he's yeah. won a big tournament? All right, well, he won, Brit- he won the British Open three years ago. Like I said. He hadn't yeah. won since until two weeks ago, though. That was why people are giving him more. 15 to 1. They're Vegas yeah, and then Ricky Fowler. Can he win the Masters? Yeah, so let me just say the following. You want yeah, Rose I, I see you where, where you're going. going. I know no, where you're going with two, this. Well, there's two things. We've talked about one of the statistics I've always used in golf. If you use the betting line, how many golfers down do you have to go to get to We've 50%? So it turns out it's between 7 and 8 here. And I'm pretty confident this – not confident – I'll, this is one of the few times I'll take the top seven or eight and I'll give you the field. Yeah, no, just like to let all. you know, yeah. the field, just to let you know, this is the smallest field in the last 40 years in the Masters. Now, what does that imply? The way you make the Masters, there's a lot of ways to qualify. You can be the top 50 in the world. Mm-hmm. 
you could win a tournament within the last year. Now, that's the key stat. It turns out that's the reason this is the smallest Masters field in a, in a large number of years. The concentration of wins is extraordinarily high. Justin Thomas has won eight tournaments in the last year. So if it had been eight different people, there'd be seven more players playing the Masters, assuming they hadn't qualified through some other way. So this is a small field. Yeah. It's because there's so many wins. For example, it's interesting. The only two players in the top ten odds who have not won in the last year are Jordan Spieth and Tiger Woods. Those two are the favorites, but Dust, uh, Dustin Johnson, Thomas, McElroy, Watson, Rose, Mickelson, Day, and Fowler have all won in the last three months. That's why everybody is so excited about the Masters. You've got ten guys, except for Spieth and Woods, who have all won recently. Eric, your, your field size comment reminds me of something that I think you brought to my attention in the last couple of years. It's something that differentiates this tournament from the other majors. And even though it's a smaller field than usual this year, it's always the smallest of the major It's fields. always the smallest. And that means that the leaderboard <laughs> is typically a little shinier in this tournament than it is the other tournaments. I mean, a great way to get nobodies on the leaderboard on Sunday is to have twice the size of the field. Sure. And that's the PGA yeah. versus the Masters. Yeah, the other thing about the Masters that's interesting, of course, is how they decide who makes the cut. So there's only 86 or 87 players playing this year. It is one of the two. I just don't... I've heard read two different sources. The top 50 in ties make the cut after the first two rounds, or you have to be within 10 shots of the lead. So it could be... I know this has never happened... 70 players could make the cut. Mm -hmm. I mean, if the leader is at, make it up minus six after the first two rounds, and plus four or better makes the cut. So you could also have this massive field of players making the cut uh, at the Masters, which is really interesting. Can I interesting. ask a question, an ignorant question? What fraction of players typically make plus four or better at the, at, in Augusta? It's a good question because it is, of course, historically. I mean, they've made some changes over time, it's but it's pretty it's, weather dependent too. It, yeah, it's extraordinarily, and it's, it's really about the speed of the greens. If it mm. hasn't rained in a couple weeks and the greens are fast and they don't water them a huge amount, even Park could win the Masters. Yeah. That was almost the Philadelphia water you gave us from a non-Philadelphia guy. Well, so how are y'all going to watch the tournament? Well, how much of it will you take on in? TV? <laughs> okay, clever boy. Mm. I'm going to watch it here in the in the uh, studio next week when we talk about it. You, uh, what? You can't watch it in the studio next week. You're not. So two people aren't watching it. Eric, I'm, it's really aimed at Eric. How many hours are you going to spend of your life? Oh, I'm watching it. Just yeah, no, I'll be watching the Masters definitely. So it'll be interesting for me. So obviously I have work, so I can't watch the Masters. The Masters is played during the day. Guys play rounds of <laughs> golf. Isn't that why you have that television day. in your office up in the? I in was the just about to say. There you go. <laughs> I was just about to say this will test my ability to multitask. <laughs> I will be watching the Masters on a uh, on a educational screen in my mm -hmm. office that I use for work. Um, yes, it will be on the Masters. Um, I will probably, if I can, if I don't have obvious meetings outside my office, um, I'll probably watch 80% of the coverage time of the Masters. Gracious. There be, is there a way to watch a compressed version of the Masters, like compressed football games and compressed baseball games? They should well, do you that. Can. Actually, you can. So you can sign up for Masters where if guys have putts like birdie putts and stuff they'll you'll get a flag and so you can just skip to holes and stuff online i'm saying you can sign well, up like, for it's like, like the high golf leverage red, it's alert. a yeah. golf red zone yeah the golf red zone <laughs> golf yes red zone. there's a golf Amazing. red zone all right so so don't ever say i didn't ask this so i you're so stanton was booed yesterday he was so he really he struck out five times the golden so, sombrero wow. as they call it 
Wow. He, Wait, so, I was in the Golden Sombrero four times? Maybe it's the Platinum Sombrero Okay, Platinum Sombrero. <laughs> Why Struck is there out a Sombrero times. I don't know. Because well, uh, it's a big... Uh, and Didi Gregorius had eight RBIs and two home runs. Yeah, man. So he Stepped up. I should pay that guy the big bucks. That's right. So I wanted to ask Adi a, a, a quick question here. Let's imagine... it was a, It's really... It's baseball. Let's imagine a team has a 4-0 start, okay? Yeah. And let's imagine their prediction had been as a 500 team, so 2-2. Two and two. So in the first four games, they've got two exceeded wins as opposed to their expectation. Is it then reasonable as a prediction to say, look, they've now got 158 games left. I'll predict 79 out of those 158. I'll add four, four onto 83. that, and that's their prediction. That's Is that it. an unreasonable a thing totally to reasonable. do? Totally reasonable. Okay. So that so could no, also no hold. Sig- what you're saying is there's no signal Correct. No signal four in four games. No. Four Correct. Game and by the way, you'd be fine with also doing that for any statistic in right. some sense. You'd be fine of doing it like for home runs. Like You could say, wow, Aaron Judge doesn't have any home runs yet, and he's played five games. Okay, well, if he was going to hit at a rate of 50, let's say .3 a game, he should have one and a half now, so you're going to drop him one and a half. Or not. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you technically would, yeah. Yeah, you're going to drop him right. roughly one and a half right. from his expected total. So, Adi, how far into the season do we that- need to be before you feel like there's some signal in these stats? Ah, okay. So some, like some wins segment. losses. Well, wins, yeah, I mean, so team, team with wins losses, it probably goes a little bit quicker than for the individual player. Okay. Because there's so I would at least about a month I would say before oh you, before that, you start to really decide. You're just saying temper temper no. all reactions for the no. first month. Well, I mean, the thing is, we do this post hoc. I mean, that's really the issue. We don't decide there's a particular team that we're gonna we're gonna be doing this with, and we should watch them. We do this. We look at the whole group, and then we kind of look at there's, you know, we've, we talk this all the time. Every list of num- of numbers has a bottom and a top. Yeah. And does that mean anything because you're at the top or the bottom? You have to look at the, compare it to the natural variation. So some team and, is going to start hot. And this, some team will start hot. Some, te- some team starts hot. Some team starts low. Yeah. And you got to wait to see that. Yeah. Now, as you know, we were just, uh, Shane and I were just looking at the list of who started hot. Well, guess who they are? Astros. Red Sox, Nationals. Well, these were teams that were predicted to be very good. Yeah. The Yankees are oh three and two, gave a game away. Um, so the, the the better teams are looking good. The weaker teams are looking poor. There are some exceptions. The Pirates are four and zero. Oh, right, that what's is that going to happen? All right, the Diamondbacks are four and yeah. one. So I had a specific question to ask, knowing that Adi and Shane would be here. So we all know if you were going to do, you know, the classic Bayesian inference would be you take some weighted average of your prior belief for the season and how you've performed during the season. But at some point in time, maybe that's not the right thing to do for baseball, because maybe you start to believe that your prior was erroneous. Like, for example, let's imagine, back to Cade's question, it's 30 games, 40 games into the season. Let's imagine a team is 30 and 10. But you had, let's 25 and 15, let's say even, and you would believe they were going to be a 450 team. So you take a weighted average of 25 and 15, which is 625, and of course their prior, which let's say is 450, and that's what Bayes inference would say to do and says how much weight to to put on each. Yeah. Yeah. But maybe there's a point at which, I know this is sort of cheating, you say, well, I don't believe my prior anymore, and therefore my weighted average of the two is not the right thing to do. Well, I mean, the whole point of a, a proper Bayesian analysis. No, I just said it's cheating. Right. It's not I, proper, but I understand it's cheat. I understand. I just admitted it's let, not. Let me give you a place where I think this matters, and I, and I would like to know how to do it. If you can show me how to do it properly, I can improve my football prediction models because essentially this is what happens with some 
with some teams is that you got the prior wrong, and right. therefore you're updating and it's dragging you down. The that, whole, that's my whole. Yeah. That's my question. So, so there must be a way to do that in like properly. There must be some way to kind of. It's a meta analysis of your model, essentially. Correct. It's some kind of acknowledgement that you don't you don't know everything you need to know when you write it down to begin with. You and probably so, want to. I mean, my guess is to be hierarchical about the prior. Yeah, there's something. Yeah, right. right. Got to add another layer. Essentially, it's like your prior is actually a mixture of like yeah. what you think and what you, gotta, you know. Well, yeah, like, for, for example, example like 50, probability 50 or something like that. Here's your normal distribution, but here's here's a possibility that it's completely different. Or another way to frame it would be if you allowed the variance of the prior, your prior belief to increase over time. Or possible? Weird, but yeah. Okay. No, no. I'm just saying. The weird concept. If, if but... you allowed the variance to increase, then obviously less weight would go on the prior as yep. you learned, and then one would but operationalize. I want, I want, but that I want would be a he- mixture. You could just say, but that would get destroy you for yeah, so many other. Teams. I want a heterogeneity issue. This yeah, is a heterogeneity. That's why fundamentally he needs heterogeneity. Anyway, I was just yeah. asking. I was just following up on Adi's question. When at some point you ask the question, when at some point do you start believing the data? Well, that the convert. You know, the logical is when do you stop believing your prior, and maybe you know that. Like putting a weight on the prior is not the right thing mm-hmm. to do. That's why I was just asking. I know it's not the correct Bayesian well, thing to do. That's okay. With a certain prior, it could be though. It could if be if you were to do some kind of mixture. So, so by the way, the the Giancarlo Stanton phrase is the Olympic rings. Apparently, platinum sombrero or Olympic rings, five strikes. Five strikes. Yeah. So, but but he but he homered twice on opening he homered, day. He homered yeah. twice on opening day. So that's and that's, the Yankees have been hitting the ball, but Giancarlo did not. Okay, so Otani homered yesterday. Yeah. First, Otani homered, and, First and he had his outing, his, his, his start, which was actually, yeah. his, his line wasn't amazing, but he threw an average of 98 miles no, an no, hour. No, 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 no. His line was pretty amazing. He gave oh, up he a three-run three run homer. No, 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 I don't understand that. But let's look beyond the, the traditional stats. He, he struck out six, walked one, certainly not bad. He, as you talked about his pitch speed, he gave up a three-run homer. But again, only gave up three hits in six innings. So if you looked at you know his whip, you know all of that, that was extraordinarily good. He had three hits and one walk in six. A innings. lot of swings and misses. A lot of swings huge. and misses. Tell, tell, me, tell me, guys, is there is there anything more athletic in sports? Is there anything more athletic in sports than uh, than a bicycle kick in soccer? No. That thing is, it's it's the Are best we talking thing about in the world. Yeah, yeah it's Did unbelievable. You Did you see? I've heard about it, change. but I haven't seen it. Wow! Are we so gonna... this is Champions League. This is Madrid, Juventus. As they were, yep. they were at they were at Juventus, I believe. Yeah, I think and it's the first one of the uh... Ju- Juventus. I'm sorry, Juventus, and um, Ronaldo. They're up. They're up two nil or something. Sixty fourth minute, and Ronaldo gets this. This cross comes. It's not the pass isn't even going to him, and we're gonna show them, we're gonna show it in studio and get reactions from the guys. We're watching it here for a second. But the claim is, my claim is, there is no more athletic move in sports. And I'm saying that as a non-soccer person. It's just unbelievable what Ronaldo is able to do here. And if you watch, I'm going to replay that a bunch of times. If you watch the other team's reactions, they're just like, they're like, what what are you supposed to do? Yeah, that's, that's, you know, it's it's sort of like making the perfect shot in hockey or something like that. It's just, you know, at some point. It's more than a person. How yeah. many a person could try that a hundred times well, and can not we, come? Can we at least? Can, it, it's unbelievable. Wow. <laughs> can we relate this, by the way, at all to what our the way we kicked off the show when talking about the NFL draft in the following sense? You've talked about this. Yeah. What's made the Patriots great for twenty years, besides coaching, is they've had a great quarterback. Yeah, and the value of having a great player. So Ronaldo's not a good player. 
He's, he's an all-time, yeah. unbelievably great a player. And talent. so you, ha- and matter of fact, it relates to Jake's comment about golf. You need high variance. You've got to invest in finding a way to get someone that's extraordinary. You're not going to win the Super Bowl unless you have a great player. Well, You're not going to win the Masters unless you have high variance. I, I, I think having that, having a generational player is one path towards success, like a Super Bowl or, or, or Champions League final. Um, I don't think it's the only path. I mean, having one, um, you know, Hall of Fame, you know, greatest of all time players that covers up, that'll cover up a lot of sort of that'll maybe make life a little easier for you. But there's, I mean, we've you know, Brad Johnson. We've we've seen teams win with mediocre quarterbacks. Teams I didn't that are, say they were the gen- he was the generational player on the team. I'm saying they had. Three great defensive players. I mean, they had Warren Sapp was on that team, I mean, Rondé Barber, I'm Hall just of saying, Fame you can players. Construct, you can, there can be successful teams without a generational talent on them. I mean, yeah. and I think we, if we, if we took the time, we could list off a whole bunch of them. Yeah. All right, fellas, as we hit the home stretch, it's time for our final segment. It's Wharton Moneyballs over under. I'm going, to turn it over, I'm going to turn it over to Bradlow here to kind of drive us home with our last few minutes on an over-under segment with many interesting questions for the team. All right. So I think we have to start with golf. Um, just because the Masters is this week, we can talk about these other sports too, but let's start with the Masters. So the first over-under is, does Tiger Woods end up within three and a half strokes of the winner, which means he could be the winner. By definition, he would be. Um, if he's within three strokes of the final leading score, that would be under. Over would be four or more strokes. So I'll start with Adi I would Wynum. say I don't know enough about variance in golf, but I would say over. over. Because that seems Intuitive. so much variance in golf, my intuition is over. My intuition is over as well. I don't have a lot of basis for it other than that. And by the way, Dots tells us that our, our Twitter followers split even on this question 50 50 they think it's an excellent over under question Shane, what do you think three and a half strokes of the lead i'm gonna go under i'm a i think he's gonna win i think he's gonna win the tournament well you still you're think he's coming in hot. you're I just mean, contrarian yeah all right oh. <laughs> there well we go played, well Here, here's what i would say Very good. for him to end up three three and a half strokes or less from the lead yeah. it probably means a top five finish yes which you know, there's certainly amazing, some variance right? in fun. that. A lot of I'd fun. say that's less than fifty percent. Right. Let's go on to the next one. Now let's go to the NFL. Three over under three and a half quarterbacks taken in the top five picks. So let me just just to lay the playing field here. If you go over three and a half, you'd have to say Rosen, Darnold, and uh, Allen and Mayfield. Allen and Mayfield. Yeah, I had Mayfield in my mind. Allen. So you'd have to go over those. You're basically saying every unique team in the top five takes a quarterback. Or Except the Browns for trade or one. Out. Saquon Barkley could be in there. No, I said three and a half. So three it could be four quarterbacks. Every four. unique team every in the top five takes So I'm going so under. yeah, Cleveland doesn't take two. <laughs> quarterbacks, right? Let's throw that out of the calculation. We need By every way, that unique would be team. Great. By the way, <laughs> I would, be would love it move. if they took two quarterbacks. Would, would that give them any advantage? Could you can you trade the quarterback yeah, that you drafted sure. right away? Yeah, yeah. Man, why not? Yeah. That could be sure. powerful. That yeah, could be. Yeah, Do you ever taking see another really a good player would be right, great would too. Would would let's imagine it's whatever April 20th, whoever the draft day 21st. Cleveland takes two quarterbacks. Would you go nuts saying this was great or smart? What would you, you do? You, you don't mean to keep them. No. 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 One to keep, one to trade. Well, if, they, if the market is strong enough, sure. I mean, you've only got 10 minutes. If you think you haven't felt, fielded all the possibilities, you know, all the possible, not even 10 minutes. These days you get five minutes, I think, in the first right. round. 
that you, you could, right. it could be Matt saying 10 still? Is it 10 in the first round? That surprises me. Yeah, I thought um, it was less as well. I thought they cranked it down. Anyway, it's happened before. It's been a long time, but it has happened before that player people take players and then trade the players. Right. I don't think it'll you, happen You don't this time. get them to training camp and let them compete? <laughs> no, no. But either way, three and a half over under. Under. I, I think all, all four of those teams take a, take a quarterback. Yeah, this is, feels like a year that that's going to happen. I'm going to go under because I don't think Baker Mayfield will quite go into the top five. I think I he's going to go a little bit later than I that. I think there's but t- typically a surprise in the top five also. This is true. It, so, mm-hmm. We do get surprises. I don't know what it mm-hmm. is. but So mm-hmm. I'm going to go under as well. All right, let's go to baseball. Um, back to our how many wins do we readjust. So let's take the Red Sox. 91 and a half wins for the Red Sox. Now their prediction before the season, make... their prediction before the season I think was 90. Yep. So the question is now that they're 5 and 1, which you could argue is maybe two exceedances, do we now go above 91 and a half wins for the Red Sox? Regrettably, I have to go over. Oh god, I can't believe you I had to make that. You went over to begin the season. Yeah, yeah I really you, I, already I, I was over 90 to begin, so I'm going to stay over 91 well, and a no half. Well, there'd be no rational reason. Yeah. No <laughs> rational reason to go below. Other than being contrarian, I also think which they I look good. Yeah, exactly. I mean, if you have to adjust your prior, I mean, we—I thought they, they were going to be good, and they look good. In so. what way? What's one thing they've looked good doing? They just have a very strong team. I mean, it, all around. Also, their team. starting pitchers, I think, have gone six straight uh, games uh, with one runner less. I don't think it's happened in. Uh, I oh, think wow. that's a record for the Red Sox. Oh wow! All right. I can just tell you um, when I was, well, I was obviously, as I said, I was at opening day where they played. I was thinking. This is an extraordinarily professional team, up and down the lineup. <laughs> no, I'm saying guys were rarely yeah. swinging at bad pitches. Yeah. It just looked Discipline. like a good team. It looked like a very disciplined hitting team. None of those 0-5 So are you sluggers. going over or under? No, I'll go over, sure. I'm going under. Okay. Uh, let's go to the NBA now. Um, 1.5 seed to win the NBA championship. So in other words, if you think a if you think Golden State was going to win, they're the two seed, you would go over. If you think Cleveland's going to win the championship, they're, they're going to the be three the seed. three yeah. seed, they would go over. So in other words, do you think the Rockets or the Raptors are going to win the championship? You can have the Rockers, Rockets or the Raptors or everybody else. Well, if you believe Vegas, you go over. If you believe 538, you go under. So I believe Vegas. I'm yeah, going over. No question. That's an easy one. I want the Rockets. I'm pulling hard for the Rockets, but but that's an easy one. Yeah, I think I'm going to take the over on that one, too. I'm going to take the over, too, because I'd rather have, I think most people would, I'll give you the Rockets and the Raptors, and I'll take the Warriors and the Cavs, yeah, and totally. we'll see who yeah, uh, totally. we'll see yeah, who ends yeah. up winning that bet. Totally. All right, the last one we have, just quickly, um, 1.5 years before Villanova makes the Final Four. <laughs> over. That's crazy. They're going to graduate some of these kids, right? They, they were there. A bunch of the kids were there for two years. Bridges. Bridges, they're saying he's a junior. He doesn't have to graduate. Junior, he's they're saying he may declare. And Brunson, even though he's graduating, could stay on as a grad student. And of course, he has another year of eligibility. So actually, of their players, you saw in the game, none of them have yet said they're leaving. So let's imagine it could be the same team coming no back. Way, I be. still think the randomness in the pro- there's enough randomness totally. in the process where so I'm you're not going to bet over. on a final four. Yeah, I'll. I'll Go over. I'm going to agree with the terrific wisdom I've heard from my colleagues. <laughs> I'm going over as well. I think that's the first one we agree upon. All right. Well, guys, that has been. Thank you, Eric. That has been another two hours of sports analytics here on Wharton Moneyball. We do this every Wednesday, eight to ten. Had the whole crew in here this morning. We're some combination of us are here every time. But thank you from Shane, Adi, Eric, and Cade. Thanks to Maddie Dodds, our boss band and producer back there. Thanks to Danielle Bruno, sound engineer, bringing us up as she always does at the end of these half-hour segments. Come back and join us next time. We'll do it a week from now. Between now and then, enjoy your sports.
For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu. Thank you.